when I wears my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. You are listening to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. This is episode 171, and I'm your host, Miguel. Today we're going to listen to two different clips of two different speakers. The first speaker you're going to hear uh, is 
from a speaker by the name of Dr. Bruce Lipton, who I did cover him in episode 86. He's the author of a book by the name of The Biology of Belief, which addresses uh, epigenetics, uh, quantum sciences, and quantum physics. He's a genius, and he really is into living the spiritual life and separating the material world from the spiritual world about living life the way we were intended to live it. He's a very enlightened spirit, and one that I highly recommend you buying his book, The Biology of Belief, and uh, getting into that. By the way, this episode is Fair Use Creative Commons License. The second speaker that we're going to listen to is William Milton Cooper, or commonly known as Bill Cooper. And he had a radio show by the name of The Hour of the Time, which I believe ran from 1991. This is before the internet, 1991 up until 2001. And the two main series that he had on that show was Mystery Babylon, which addressed the book of Revelations in the Bible, but in a very, very esoteric way he covered it. And the other one is Mystery Babylon, which gets into ancient Egypt, and Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and Illuminati. And, but on not just saying Illuminati, that type of stuff, but on some real stuff. Very well-researched, highly intelligent man. Both speakers, actually, Bruce Lipton and, and William Cooper. William Cooper is very esoteric. People really haven't heard of him. And he basically, back in 1991, 92, and in those earlier years basically outlined everything that we're seeing today verbatim i mean the man had his finger on the pulse and he had i don't know how, how he was able to do it but he just channeled i shouldn't use the word channel but he was just able to use his intelligence his intuition and his uh, ability to research and study to crack the code on everything that's taking place back then he cracked the code and, and was breaking it down then that these are the things that are going to be happening. And just as he predicted, they're all coming true exactly to the day, to the word. I mean, he has a, the radio show that he had, The Hour of the Time. There's a website by the same name, thehouroftetime.com, where you can get all of his MP3s. And he speaks on all different type of diverse topics. He might not be everyone's cup of tea, he takes long pauses, he reflects, he kind of laughs on his own. and But he he's one of those um, genius types where he's kind of in his own world and he ruminates out to whoever's listening. To either they get it or they don't. But he's a genius man and he was a huge inspiration for me. He's the granddaddy of conspiracy theorists. Anybody that knows the name Bill Cooper will tell you. And he was, like I said, he was. A tr I was listening to him back in 91 and 92 when he was doing these original broadcasts. And if I'm not mistaken, I think, I believe I caught a few of the shows right over the airwaves also. So he wasn't a big time guy. He wasn't backed by some big radio station. He funded his own radio station by, you know, donations of listeners and such. But he, and he is the author of, I believe it is two books it, it's Behold the Pearl Horse and Mystery Babylon. So. When you're listening to Bill Cooper, give him a chance and listen to him because he kind of unfolds as he speaks because, again, he's so esoteric and he comes at things from so many different directions. It's really worth listening to him. And oddly enough, like in, even till today, a lot of times when you know I'm going to go to sleep and I kind of put my head down at 1130 at night or whatever it is, I'll just throw on a couple of MP3s. I go onto YouTube. 
and I'll, you know, I'll listen to him, you know, with my little earpiece in and kind of half asleep and kind of half listen to him because it's, he's that type of person that uh, you could just listen to him over and over and over again. He was a gift to mankind. He really was. And the way he viewed uh, the world and the way he was able to in interconnect all of these different schools of disciplines of knowledge. Genius, genius, you know. There was really only one Bill Cooper. I cannot... I cannot give enough credit to him and enough uh, gratitude to have been lucky enough to listen to Bill Cooper. So I'm not going to speak too much today um, because the speakers that I have will pretty much echo all of my thoughts and 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 pretty much my views also. So we're gonna we're gonna get into this episode. It's gonna be kind of a long show. Probably gonna run hmm, closer to two hours or so. So sit back and. Uh, you know, relax and let's get into the show, man. And also visit my IGTV, uh, my Instagram, all by the name of Alpha Male Buddhist. I do want to thank you guys for all of the kind feedback that you've given me and the emails and the Instagram messages. It's really appreciated. I get so many uh, positive messages that it just fills me, fulfills me so much with gratitude that, you know, I, I, I'm able to interact with, with such a uh, Valued people, you know, really, uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. So let's get into the show. Now, if you look around at the world today, you say, oh my God, this looks like hell on earth. We didn't come from hell on earth. We came from the proverbial Garden of Eden. A garden is the highest level of cooperation of organisms. And then look what we've done here. Look at this world that we end up with today. Look around, we are in hell right now. This is actually prognosticated in the Bible's book of Revelations where they talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Those four horsemen are represented by disease, famine, war, and death. Is this an inevitable conclusion to our world, or is there an alternative opportunity? Conventionally, the concept of apocalypse is a very scary thing, a breakdown of the world as we know it. The original uh, meaning of apocalypse in Greek means an unveiling, an uncovering of knowledge that we haven't seen before. And this is what we're facing right now because the new knowledge that we're being exposed to will take us from a destruction into the creation of a better, more functional world. Let's go back and understand the basic nature of a civilization. A civilization is based on a set of truths that are understood by the people of that civilization to be a valid understanding of the world. And when a truth of the civilization change, so does a civilization. A civilization is characterized by its culture, its behavior. But where do these behavioral norms come from? Well, in the previous civilization, they came from religion, which gave us a bunch of beliefs about spirit, God, and the planet. And the church had a wonderful understanding of itself called infallible knowledge. This is the belief that whatever the church was saying was direct from God, and it was absolutely true. Well, this would only work as long as the knowledge was found to be infallible. But if something upset that knowledge, it would actually throw a monkey wrench into the civilization. And in 1543, a priest by the name of Copernicus revealed that some of this infallible knowledge was quite incorrect. Remember, the belief of the church was that the earth was the center of the universe and all the stars, the sun, the planets were all revolving around the earth. Copernicus tried to calculate a calendar based on this belief. 
but it didn't work. He actually went back to the age of Ptolemy in Egypt and found out that the sun, according to the Egyptians, was the center of our particular universe and that the earth was revolving around the sun. When Copernicus put the sun into the center of the universe, he was able to accurately predict the dates of all the ceremonies for the church. However, in doing so, he created a heresy. The significance of Copernicus's work is that it broke the idea of infallibility and offered an opportunity for new ideas to come into the world outside of the dogma of the church. There's an old saying that we're all familiar with, knowledge is power. I go, yeah, that's a very true statement. But let me also say the statement in a different context. A lack of knowledge represents a lack of power. So if we don't have certain knowledge, then we become powerless in the field where that knowledge is applied. We now recognize that four fundamental beliefs that have shaped the culture and what we call the civilization of scientific materialism, four fundamental beliefs that have shaped this culture are found to be flawed or outright wrong. And as a result, civilization is expressing a lack of power by adhering to incorrect stories. I refer to these four basic principles that are flawed as the four myth perceptions of the apocalypse. When we use the term myth, what we mean is actually a belief that we bought to be true. Whether it's true or not, we own it as truth, and as a result, we create a world based on that myth. Now, if the myth is false, then the world that we create is not going to be in harmony with real life. What beliefs did we buy that are now wrong and have taken us out of the harmony on this planet? This is a list of the four myth perceptions that has misdirected civilization. Myth number one is the belief in Newtonian universe, which is a separation of matter from energy and then emphasizing matter as primary. Myth number two is the belief that genes control our biology, which is a belief that makes us victims of the heredity of the genes that we receive from our parents. Myth number three and four are predicated on the Darwinian theory of evolution, with myth number three being the fact that evolution is driven by random mutations, accidents, and as a result, is there any purpose for our being on this planet? No. And myth number four is another extension of Darwinian theory that says evolution is driven by a competition for fitness and the struggle for life, which then means that we are now competing with each other to survive rather than recognizing unity and wholeness. Well, let's start with myth number one, and that's the belief that Newtonian principles, Newtonian physics, are the principles that shape the unfolding of our world and the universe in which we live. Newtonian principles actually divide the universe into two realms, a physical, mercurial, mechanical realm versus an invisible, energetic realm. Being humans made out of matter, then we are supposed to conform to the material realm laws provided by Newton. We just become physical machines, but we ignore the relevance of the invisible realm around us, which formerly was referred to as a spiritual realm. So we live in a world without spirituality. We live in a world of materiality with the purpose of what? Getting more and more matter, more and more material to reveal how powerful you are in this world. 
Myth number one, the Newtonian belief of a material-based universe is incorrect based on the new science of quantum physics because matter appears to be an illusion. When we look into the structure of the atom, it turns out there is no particular structure that we believe, but it's actually an energy vortex, that everything is energy. And the significance is this, energy cannot be separated. Energy represents unity. All energy and all individual things that we see as matter are all energy connected to each other. Quantum physics is the most valid science on this planet. There is no science that has been tested and affirmed to be more truthful than quantum physics. We have to start recognizing a unity rather than a separation in the material world, the old belief. A second belief that turns out to be false is the belief in what we refer to as genetic determinism. The belief in genetic determinism, which is the belief that genes determine the characteristic of our lives. Well, as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes we came with. Also, if we don't like the characteristics we have, we can't change the genes. And then add on top of that the belief that genes turn on and off by themselves, and then we start to recognize, oh my goodness, our lives are controlled by factors that we have no control over, that genes control us and we don't control them. We become victims of our heredity. Well, guess what? That belief is totally false because we now know there's a new science. It's not called genetics, it's called epigenetics. In genetics, the genes control our life. In epigenetics, it's important to understand the meaning of the word epigenetics, and that is because epi means above. So what does it mean? The characters that we express are controlled above epi, above the genes. Now we know that our consciousness and our response to the environment is what controls our genetics. Through my consciousness and my response to the environment, I can change my genetic activity. I can either enhance my genetic expression or even unfortunately with negative consequences, I can destroy myself with diseases just because of the action of my mind. But the action of the mind is under my control. So I'm not a victim of my genetics, I am a master of my genetics. And as if we understand this, then we wouldn't be facing a healthcare crisis that is undermining civilization at this moment. We would be powerful enough to control our own lives, our own health, our own vitality. A third belief that is now found to be flawed is connected to Darwinian theory. Over millions of years, accidental mutations with positive mutations being selected, negative mutations being eliminated, has led to who and what we are in this world today. So there's a very important understanding about that and is based on this. If random mutations are the source of evolution, the start of an evolutionary process, Random, by definition, means accidental. If we're here by a whole series of accidental mutations, then what, if any, is the purpose of humans on this planet? And we start to recognize very simply, there is no purpose to human civilization if it was all random mutations that initiated our evolution. Just for example, if a particular mutation that made us human didn't accidentally occur, what would be the result today? Well, it turns out this is not really true that evolution is actually based on adaptation, that an organism will adjust its genetics to conform to the environment. And in regard to that, just think of humans at the top level of this adaptability. Humans can live in any environment on this planet. How come? The answer is because we can adapt and it's not an accident. It's a purposeful change. Oh, 
Life is a purposeful change. What is the purpose of our existence on this planet? The garden that we evolved from, every organism that evolved in that garden participated in keeping the wholeness and the cooperation expressed as a garden. We evolved in that garden, and as the indigenous people of this planet already knew and lived, they said, oh, we are in a garden, and that the role of humans is to be a gardener in that garden. We must learn now to live in harmony with the garden and actually return to being gardeners. That is the function that we had to keep balance in this beautiful planet that we arrived in. Myth number four happens to be the belief that evolution is driven by competition against one another. This is a false understanding, and it actually isn't due to Darwin. It was before Darwin. At the end of the 1700s, there was a philosopher by the name of Thomas Malthus. He came up with the idea that plants don't reproduce faster than animals reproduce. I go, why is that relevant? Well, if animals are living on the plants and animals are reproducing faster than the plants, there's gonna be a point where there's not gonna be enough plants for all the animals that exist. The net result meaning a competition for survival. And that's where the whole idea in Darwinian theory comes from, that we are in a continuous struggle for survival with a competition for fitness, as if there won't be enough for all of us, and therefore we have to be the winner in that challenge. However, this is a completely misunderstanding of the truth, that we now recognize that evolution is not based on competition, it's based on cooperation. It turns out that animals and plants get into an equilibrium, and they balance with each other. And it's an interesting fact, for example, in animal reproduction, every mating pair, when they reproduce, actually reproduce two offspring that will survive to mate again. Now, a clam may have a thousand eggs, but only two clams are going to actually mature. What is the point? The illusion of competition is not a valid insight in the world of nature. Nature is built on cooperation. Nature is built on unity, that all organisms come together to live in harmony, hence a garden. And in fact, if you actually go back and understand the root of the word competition, competition meant to strive together, to work together to create a better end result rather than a winner-loser mentality that we have bought into today. Competition means working together, and that's what we need to do now. These new alterations to the four myths change our beliefs. Yes, but then understand this. When the beliefs change, so does culture. And so we are in a transition period right now. As we look at the world crumbling all around us, we have to own a very simple fact. We're not passive victims in this process. We are the people that are creating this devolution. And therefore, we are being called on by nature at this moment to say, you better change the way you're living on this planet or you won't be here in the very near future. So the new beliefs that we're talking about, the new understandings of the former myth perceptions, the new ones help us move from the hell on earth that we have just created to actually experiencing heaven on earth. And when you understand this, then the nature of the honeymoon effect becomes apparent. And that is simply this. Our consciousness and our subconscious programs make life a struggle. 
And for most of us every day, our life is blah, 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 working, working, struggling, struggling, and struggling. But then realize this, there's a time where you might meet someone and you fall in love. Within 24 hours of falling in love, the blah, blah, blah world you experience absolutely changes to a world of heaven on earth, the honeymoon effect. Heaven on earth was always here. Well, if it's always here, then how come we're experiencing the hell of this world falling apart? And the answer is simple. We built a cultural behavioral system on false understandings of science. We're facing an evolution. It's not a passive process. It's a participatory process. Are we going to work together to create harmony and a new garden? Or are we gonna let this go by the wayside as we face a looming extinction? It's up to us. I have high hopes for us because as the new science reveals, we have the power to change our lives and the world in which we live. And when we become aware of that power through the knowledge, the knowledge is power, then all of a sudden the world will change and we will end up having heaven on earth for as long as we want to live on this planet. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bruce Lipton, author of the best-selling books, The Biology of Belief, Spontaneous Evolution, and The Honeymoon Effect. No doubt if you've been looking at the news, uh, scanning the web, or even looking out your window, you can see the world's in a state of chaos and upheaval. Well, it's a very important time for us because we're on the threshold of a new evolution, an evolution that is not the evolution of our body, but the evolution of our consciousness. We are not going to be individuals. We're going to come together where each of us is a cell in the body of a new organism called humanity. So the relevance about all this is to understand there's a new science that really reveals how powerful we are as creators. The Voice of Freedom. You're listening to the Worldwide Freedom Radio Network. again to the hour of the time. I'm William Cooper. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure that you stay glued to your radio tonight as we bring you another in the never-ending series that we call Mystery Babylon. Tonight's episode, ladies and gentlemen, is entitled Darkness. There is no study so intriguing and yet so mysterious as that of the early religions of mankind. To trace back the worship of God to its simple origin, and to mark the gradual process of those degrading superstitions and hollowed rites which darkened 
and finally extinguished his presence in the ancient world. At first, men enjoyed the blessings of nature as children do in an age of innocence without inquiring into causes. It was, in fact, sufficient for them that the earth gave them herbs, that the trees bore them fruit, that the stream quenched their thirst. They were happy, and every moment, though unconsciously, they offered a prayer of gratitude to him whom as yet they did not know. And then a system of theology arose amongst them vague and indefinite as the waters of the boundless sea. They taught each other that the sun, the earth, the moon, and the stars were moved and illumined by a great soul which was the source of all life, which caused the birds to sing, the brooks to murmur, and the sea to heave. It was a sacred fire which shone in the firmament, and in mighty flames it was a strange being which animated the souls of men, and which, when the bodies died, returned unto itself again. Ancient man silently adored this great soul in the beginning and spoke of him with reverence. And sometimes they raised their eyes timidly to his glittering dwelling place on high. And soon they learned to pray. When those whom they loved lay dying, they uttered wild lamentations and flung their arms despairingly toward the mysterious soul. For in times of trouble, the human mind, so imbecile, so helpless, always clings back to something that is much stronger than itself. As yet, in that time, they worshipped only the sun, the moon, and the stars. And not as gods, but as visions of that divine essence which alone ruled and pervaded the earth, the sky, and the sea. They adored him kneeling with their hands clasped and their eyes raised. They offered him no sacrifices. They built him no temples. You see, they were content to offer him their hearts, which were full of awe, in his own temple, which was full of the grandeur of nature. For the God they worshipped was indeed nature's God. And it is said by some that there are yet some barbarous islands where men have no churches nor ceremonies and where they still worship God, reflected in the work of His uncountable hands. And the mystery and the balance and the perfection of nature. 
But you see, they were not long content with this simple service. There were those amongst them who learned how to subvert and twist so that they could control the others around them. Prayer, which had first been an inspiration, suddenly fell into a system. And men already grown wicked prayed the deity to give them abundance of wild beast skins and to destroy their enemies. They ascended eminences, mountain tops, and they built towers as if hoping that thus their being near God, he would prefer their prayers to those of their rivals. And those who controlled those eminences became powerful. And such is the origin of that superstitious reverence for high places which was universal throughout the whole, the entire heathen world. Then, it is clear in the ancient annals that someone came forth. Orpheus was born. And he invented instruments which to his touch and to his lips gave forth notes of surpassing sweetness. And with these melodies... He enticed the wandering, innocent savages into the recesses of the forest. And there, there Orpheus taught them precepts of obedience to the great soul and of loving kindness toward each other in harmonious words. And he became the high priest. And so they devoted groves and forests to the worship of the deity. There were men who had watched Orpheus and who had seen and envied his power over the herd who surrounded him. For even then there were sheeple. They resolved to imitate him, and having studied these barbarians, they banded together and called themselves their priests. Religion is divine, but its ministers, after all, are men. The idea from the beginning that imperfect men could rule imperfect men is flawed. For alas, sometimes they are demons with the faces and wings of angels. You see, the simplicity of men and the cunning of their priests has destroyed or corrupted all the religions of the world, bar none. 
For these priests, ladies and gentlemen, taught the people to sacrifice the choicest herbs and flowers. They taught them formulas of prayer and bade them make so many obeisances to the sun and to worship those flowers which opened their leaves when he rose and which closed them as he set. For the great ball of fire that makes its way from dawn to dusk across the sky was seen as the Savior to those who huddled in the cold darkness surrounded by wild beasts of prey. And it was to that sun that they directed their worship as the great symbol in the heaven of the power of God and the source of all life on this earth. For remember, theirs was a worship of nature's God. They composed a language of symbols, which was perhaps necessary in those times, since letters had not been invented, but which perplexed the people and perverted them from the worship of the one God. Those symbols are still used upon the sheeple of the world today. The great herd. Thus, the sun represented the great doctrine of this religion. The moon represented the church, reflecting the pure light of the sun. And the sun and the moon were worshipped as emblems of God. And fire, by the philosophers of fire, as an emblem of the sun. Water, as an emblem of the moon, which by faith reflected the pure light of of its master. The serpent represented the full body of the priesthood, the initiates, and was to be worshipped as an emblem of wisdom and eternal youth, since it renews its skin every year. And thus, it periodically casts off all symptoms of old age and begins anew. Reborn, if you will, And the bull, the most vigorous of animals and whose horns resembled those of the crescent moon, was also worshipped. The priests observed the avidity with which the barbarians adored these symbols and increased them. It was a time of great mystery and little understanding of any that was seen around them. To ancient man, the sun was seen to die, and darkness descended around them. It was a time of great danger and cold. And then, as if by magic, the sun was reborn each morning and made its way across the sky, where it became old and then died again. And they began to measure their world by the seasons of the sun. 
their religion reflected all of this. And religions today, even though denying any connection with this ancient paganism, still reflects this exact religion in its ceremonies and in its holy days. Even to the layout of its churches. To worship the visible is a disease of the soul inherent to all mankind, and the disease which these men could have healed, instead they pandered to. It is true that the first generation of men might have looked upon these merely as the empty symbols of a divine being, but it is also certain that in time the vulgar forgot the god in the emblem and worshipped that which their fathers had only honored, and therefore the symbol became the god. Egypt was the fountainhead of these idolatries, and it was in Egypt that the priests first applied real attributes to the sun and to the moon, whom they called his wife, and sister and mother. And the sun became Osiris, the moon became Isis, brother and sister, mother and son, husband and wife. May, it may perhaps, for those of you who have not heard it, maybe have not been listening to this broadcast for a great period of time, it may perhaps interest you to listen to the first, the very first fable of the world. From the midst of chaos was born Nimrod. And at his birth, a voice was heard proclaiming, The ruler of all the earth is born. And from the same dark and troubled womb were born Semiramis, the queen of light, and the spirit of darkness. This Nimrod traveled over the whole world and civilized its inhabitants and taught them the art of agriculture. And his wife, Semiramis, built the first fortified cities and walls. But on his return, the jealous darkness laid a stratagem for him, and in the midst of a banquet had him slain. He was nailed down in his prison, which cast into the river, floated into the sea, which even in that ancient time was never mentioned but with marks of detestation. And when Semiramis learned these sad news, she cut off a lock of her hair and put it on her mourning robes and wandered through the whole country in search of the dead body of her husband. Eventually, she found it. 
by casting a magic spell A magical intercourse was obtained between Semiramis and the dead Nimrod, from which a child emerged. The child was Tammuz, and Semiramis fed the infant with her finger instead of with her breast and put him every night into fire to render him immortal. And now, let me read you a later story of the same myth, only with different names. And I have to depart from my narration here and read this to you. From the midst of chaos was born Osiris, and at his birth a voice was heard proclaiming, The ruler of all the earth is born. And from the same dark and troubled womb were born Isis, the queen of light, and Typhon, the spirit of darkness. This Osiris moved over the whole world and civilized its inhabitants and taught them the art of agriculture, brought them together in societies for their mutual benefit and protection. But on his return to Egypt, the jealous Typhon laid a stratagem for him, and in the midst of a banquet had him shut up in a chest, which exactly fitted his body. He was nailed down in his prison, which cast into the Nile, floated down to the sea by the Ta'idic mouth, which even in the time of Plutarch was never mentioned by an Egyptian except with disdain and loathing. When Isis heard the news, she cut off a lock of her hair and put on her mourning robes and wandered through the whole country in search of the chest which contained the dead body of her husband. At length she learnt that the chest had been carried by the waves to the shore of Byblos, and had there lodged in the branches of a tamarisk bush, which quickly shot up and became a large and beautiful tree growing round the chest so that it could not be seen. The king of the country, amazed at the vast size the tree had so speedily acquired, ordered it to be cut down, to be hewn into a pillar to support the roof of his palace, the chest being still concealed in the trunk. The voice which had spoken from heaven at the birth of Osiris made known these things to poor Isis, who then went to the shore of Byblos and sat down silently by a fountain to weep. The damsels of the queen met her and accosted her, and the queen appointed her to be nurse to her child. And Isis fed the infant with her finger instead of with her breast, and put him every night into fire to render him immortal. While transforming herself into a swallow, she hovered around the pillar which was her husband's tomb, and bemoaned her unhappy fate. 
It happened that the queen thus discovered her and shrieked when she saw her child surrounded by flames. And by that cry she broke the charm and deprived him of immortality. By that cry, Isis was summoned back to her goddess form and stood before the awestruck queen, shining with light and diffusing sweet fragrances around. She cut open the pillar and took the coffin with her and opened it in a desert. There she embraced the cold corpse of Osiris and wept bitterly. The Hour of the Time is brought to you by Swiss America Trading. Swiss America Trading, ladies and gentlemen, has made their business serving you to prepare you for hard times that are coming as this world socialism that has our country in its grasp attempts to collapse the economy and destroy the middle class according to the precepts of the Communist Manifesto written by Marx and Engels many, many years ago. There is only one commodity that throughout the history of the world has maintained its value over millennia, and that is gold and silver coin. It does not specifically have to be in the form of coin, but it helps. You see, one ounce of silver will buy the same number of loaves of bread today that it would 1,500 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 20 years ago, and it will buy those same number of loaves of bread 100 years from now. And the same story can be found in history about gold. There's no paper economy that has ever succeeded, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of the world. There has never been an economy based on gold or silver coin that has ever failed. Our founding fathers knew this, and that's why they specifically stated in the Constitution that no state shall tender in payment of debt anything other than gold or silver coin. And yet today... Yet today, that is one of the biggest indications that our Constitution is being ignored. For no state tenders payment of debt today in anything other than electronic transfers, paper, and instruments of debt. I strongly suggest that you call our sponsors and get a hold of the newsletter. I strongly urge you, ladies and gentlemen, to call them and ask how you can get your hands on some real money so that you might save the worth of some of your assets and retain some of what you have earned from the sweat of your brow for the life that you have so far lived. Thank them for sponsoring the Hour of the Time and for backing the Worldwide Freedom Radio Network. And do it now. 
1-800-289-2646. That's 1-800-289-2646. Don't procrastinate, ladies and gentlemen. For this whole house of cards could come tumbling down at any moment. It could happen tonight while we sleep. 1-800-289-2646. That's 1-800-BIKE. Isis returned to Egypt and hid the coffin in a remote place, but Typhon, hunting by moonlight, chanced to find it and divided the corpse into fourteen pieces. Again, Isis set out on her weary search throughout the whole land, sailing over the finny parts in a boat made of papyrus. She recovered all the fragments except one which had been thrown into the sea. Each of these she buried in the place where she found it, which explains why in Egypt there are so many tombs of Osiris. And instead of the limb which was lost, she gave the phallus to the Egyptians, the disgusting worship of which was thence carried into Italy, into Greece, and into all the countries of the East. And today, people pay obeisance to this phallus when they stand in awe of the Washington Monument, or when they attend spike training. For truly, <laughs> for truly, it is the shaft. When Isis died, she was buried in a grove near Memphis. Over her grave was raised a statue covered from head to foot with a black veil, and underneath was engraved these divine words, quote, I am all that has been, that is, that shall be, and none among mortals has yet dared to raise my veil, end quote. Beneath this veil, ladies and gentlemen, are concealed all the mysteries and learning of the past. A young scholar, his fingers covered with the dust of venerable folios, his eyes weary and reddened by nightly toil, will now attempt to lift a corner of this mysterious and sacred covering. The folios are the old books that I have discovered in used bookstores across the country and around the world. And truly, in some of those dark and dim corners and shelves that have never been touched, I have been literally covered with the dust of years that has settled upon these ancient volumes. Those that I could afford have found their way into my library, where they still serve today. You see, these two deities, Isis and Osiris, were the parents of all the gods and goddesses of the heathens, or were indeed those gods themselves worshipped under many different names, Nimrod, Semiramis, Isis, Osiris, Diana, and Dionysus. The fable itself was received into the mythologies of the Hindus and the Romans. Sarah is said to have mutilated Brahma as Typhon did Osiris, and Venus to have lamented her slain Adonis as Isis wept for her husband, God, brother, 
sun. And as yet, the sun and moon alone were worshipped under these two names. And as we have seen, besides these twin beneficial spirits, men who had begun to recognize sin in their hearts had created an evil one who struggled with the power of life and fought with them for the souls of men. I must tell you that in my studies I find that it has been natural through all history for man to fabricate something that is worse than himself rather than take the responsibility upon his own shoulders. And even in the theology of the American Indians, which is the purest of the modern world, there is found a mahitu, or dark spirit. Osiris, or the sun, was now worshipped throughout the whole world, though under different names. He was the Mithra of the Persians, the Brahma of India, the Baal, or Adonis of the Phoenicians. He was the Apollo of the Greeks, the Odin of Scandinavia, the Hue of the Britons, and the Byway of the Laplanders. Isis, ladies and gentlemen, also received the name of Islin, Ceres, Rhea, Venus, Vesta, Sibyl, Niobe, Melissa, Nehalenia in the north. Isi with the Indians, Puza among the Chinese, and Seridwin among the ancient Britons. The Egyptians were sublime philosophers who had dictated theology to the world. And in Chaldea arose the first astrologers who watched the heavenly bodies with curiosity as well as with awe and who made divine discoveries and who called themselves the interpreters of God. And to each star they gave a name, and to each day in the year they gave a star. And the Greeks and Romans, who were poets, wreathed these names into legends. Each name was a person, and each person was a god. From these stories of the stars originated the angels of the Jews, the genie of the Arabs, the heroes of the Greeks, and the saints of the Ramish church. And then, corruption grew upon corruption and superstition, flung black and hideous veal over the doctrines of religion. You see, a religion, ladies and gentlemen, is lost, utterly lost, as soon as it loses its simplicity. Truth has no mysteries, it is deceit alone that lurks in obscurity. It is only the lie that is hidden behind a door. Men multiplied God into a thousand names and created Him always in their own image. Him, too, 
whom they had once deemed unworthy of any temple less noble than the floor of the earth and the vast dome of the sky which he had created, they worshipped in caves and then in temples which were made of the trunks of trees, rudely sculptured and ranged in rows to imitate groves of trees, and with other trunks placed upon them traversely to form the cross that is seen when you hold up your son behind some obstacle. They streak across the sky. These were the first buildings of worship erected by man from no reverence for the deity, for God, but only to display that which they conceived to be a stupendous effort in art and to display their knowledge and power so as to more adequately rule and subjugate the herd, the sheeple, the profane humanity that had not a clue, and still doesn't, by the way. It may be necessary to remind some of you that a superior being God, if you will, must view the elegant temples of the Romans, the gorgeous pagodas of India, and the Gothic cathedrals of the Western world with feelings similar to those with which we might contemplate the rude efforts of the early heathens or a hill of ants who deemed God unworthy of the fruits and flowers which he himself had made and offered to him the entrails of beasts and the hearts of human beings. Can you imagine the audacity, the arrogance of such a thing? We can compare, ladies and gentlemen, an ancient and fallen religion to the ship of the Argonauts, which the Greeks, desiring to preserve to posterity, repairing in so many different ways, that at length there did not remain a fragment of the original vessel which had borne to Colchis the conqueror of the Golden Fleece. So let's pass over a lapse of many, many years, centuries, if you will, and then contemplate the condition of the nations in whom religion had been first born. We find the Egyptians adoring the most common of plants, the most contemptible of beasts, the most hideous of reptiles, The solemnity and pomp of their absurd ceremonies held them up to the ridicule of the whole wide world. Clemens of Alexandria describes one of their temples thusly, quote, 
The walls shine with gold and silver and with amber and sparkle with the gems of India and Ethiopia, and the recesses are concealed by splendid curtains. But if you enter the penetralia and inquire for the image of God for whose sake the fane was built, one of the pastophori or some other attendant on the temple approaches with a solemn and mysterious face and putting aside the veil suffers you to obtain a glimpse of the divinity. And there, upon an altar, you behold a snake or a crocodile or a cat or some other beast a fitter inhabitant of a cavern or a bog than of a temple, or a giant penis, the phallus of Osiris, which Isis had substituted upon the altar of Egypt. The priests of Egypt were always impostors, but once so celebrated, had degenerated into a race of jugglers, a circus, if you will. Also, the Chaldeans lived upon the fame of their fathers and upon their own base trickeries. No one was honest anymore. No one could point to God. No one understood that all the symbols of the universe and nature represented the power of an unseen God. that the first men worshipped. The Brahmins or Brahmins whose priests of India once so virtuous and celebrated as being so wise, they too had fallen. Once they had forbidden the shedding of so much as an insect's blood. One day in the year alone, at the feast of Jagam, they were authorized to sacrifice the flesh of a beast and from this, many had refrained from attending, unable to conquer their feelings of abhorrence. But now, they had learnt from the fierce Scythians and from the Phoenicians who traded on their coast to sacrifice the wife upon her husband's pair to appease the gentle Brahma with the blood of men, and that ceremony continues to this day. The angels who had presided over them became savage demons who scourged them on to cruel penances, even to lifetimes of suffering and famine. And in the sacred groves where once the Brahmin fathers had taught their precepts of love, men emaciated, careworn, even dying, wondered sadly waiting for death as tortured prisoners wait for their liberty. But worse still, these wicked priests sought through the land for the most beautiful young women and trained them to dance in the temples and to entice the devotees to their arms with lustful attitudes and languishing looks and with their voices which mingled harmoniously with the golden bells suspended on their feet, they became prostitutes for the priesthood. They sang hymns to the gods in public and in private, enriched the treasuries of the pagoda with their infamous earnings. And thus a pure and very simple religion was debased by the avarice and lewdness of its priests. So the temples became a den of thieves. 
Though prostitution sat enthroned upon the altars of the gods, and today it continues, although prostitution in a different way, most religious meetings today are spiritual consumerism. It begins with a problem, and when the hour is over, the problem has been solved, and the coffers of the priest, the minister, have been filled in the process. Greece and Rome, buried in sloth and luxury, did not escape the general contamination. The emblem of generation, the phallus which Isis had bestowed upon the Egyptians, and which they had held in abstract reverence, had now obtained a prominent place in the festivals of these nations, as did the lingam and those of the Hindus. And it was openly paraded in possessions before guests in the home, and processions in the streets. It was worn by Roman nations and bracelets upon their arms. It adorns our nation's capital as the Washington Monument and stands mocking us in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. The sacred festivals and mysteries which they had received from the Egyptians and for which the women had been wont to prepare themselves by continence and the men by fasting were now mere vehicles for all the depravities and deceptions of the very lowest kind. Men were permitted to join the women in the worship of Bacchus or Adonis of the Bonadilla and even of Priapus. And so dissolute did the Dionusia become, ladies and gentlemen, that the civil powers were compelled, yea, forced to interfere with those of religion, and the Bacchanalia were abolished by a decree of the Roman Senate. But it was too late, for Rome's fate had been sealed. And the Jews, the chosen people of God, had not their religion changed? Had not God, weary with their sins, yielded them to captivity, scourged them with sorrow, menaced them with curses? And isn't the state of Israel more a secular state than a religious state today? despite the claims of Zionism. They worshipped Baal, Peor, the Priapus of Assyria. They sacrificed their children to Moloch. They had dancing girls in the Holy Temple. This corruption spared no race, no people, no religion, and no one can point to any other and say truthfully that they are more guilty than they. For all are guilty. All people, all religions, all nations, all over this world have destroyed the simple precepts of all of the different religions of the world. And none resemble 
even slightly what they began to be. And I'm not going to go deeper into particulars that are so degrading to human nature. I can see you squirming on your seats as it is. So I will have mercy. I will instead invite you to follow me by steadily listening to the hour of the time to a corner where you may begin to more readily understand where we are at and where we are going for there are many who have traveled this route before in the history of the world it is enacted in cycles and those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it there is a place in the world where at least for many ages religion was preserved in its pristine purity and whose priests through a barbarous soldiery were received as martyrs, they claim, in heaven before they'd even learned to be knaves upon this earth. It was an isolated spot unknown to the world in the earlier ages of vice. It is now a kingdom renowned for its once great power that encircled the globe and for its luxuries from hemisphere to hemisphere and for its civilizing influence, and also its abject cruelty. It was encircled by the blue waters of the German and Atlantic seas and abounded in the choicest gifts of nature. It was called the White Island, from the cliffs which still frown so coldly upon Gaul, and the land of green hills from its verdant mountains. There was a song during World War II called The White Cliffs of Dover. In subsequent broadcasts, and they may not be coming soon, I will take you to that land and I will show you its priests in their white robes and its warriors in the blue paint of war and its virgins with their long and glossy yellow hair. And I will tell you the truth of the ancient religion of Britain and it has absolutely nothing to do with any lost tribe of Israel. We will begin that journey some some propitious evening where I will lead you back into the past and relate to you why this land was called Albion and why Britain. Good night, ladies and gentlemen, and God bless each and every single one of you. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. True, church. It doesn't exist anywhere today except in small pockets of individuals who meet with each other. 
in Christ's name. All of these organized religions have bastardized the teachings of Christ, have corrupted the teachings of Jesus, and most of them are helping to lead you into slavery in the New World Order. In those days, great signs and wonders were performed as God confirmed his word with signs following. True Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, anointed by the Holy Spirit, swept the world like a prairie fire. Nothing could stop it. No matter how many Christians the emperor crucified, no matter how many Christians were thrown to the animals in the Roman circus, one hundredfold sprang up to take their place. This movement encircled the mountains and crossed the oceans. It made kings tremble and tyrants fearful. And it was said of those early Christians that they had turned the world literally upside down. So powerful was their message and spirit. Now, I am talking about the true Christian teachings of Jesus Christ in the way that it was followed in the early days of Christ's church, not Rome's church, not Baptist's church, not Lutheran's church, not Orthodox church, but Christ's church. Before too many years had passed, men began to set themselves up as lords over God's people in places of the Holy Spirit instead of conquering by spiritual means and by truth by truth not too many people in the world understand what truth even means today as in the early days men began to substitute their ideas and their methods in place of the teachings that Christ gave us the Inquisition came from these people not from Jesus Christ the Crusades came from these people, not from Jesus Christ. Attempts to merge paganism into Christianity were being made even in the days when our New Testament was being written, folks. For Paul mentioned that the mystery of iniquity was already at work. Already at work. And he warned that there would come a falling away and some would depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, the counterfeit doctrines of the pagans. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And by the time that Jude wrote the book that bears his name, it was necessary for him to exhort the people to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. For certain men had crept in who were attempting to substitute things that were no part of the original faith. Check Jude, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Christianity, folks, came face to face with the Babylonian paganism in its various forms that had been established in the Roman Empire. The early Christians refused to have anything to do with its customs and beliefs. And we all know what happened much persecution resulted. Many, many Christians were falsely accused, thrown to the lions, burned at the stake, and in other ways tortured and martyred. 
and for their own safety, they went underground in the catacombs and in the caves, and they formed their own secret society, which was known then as the Friendly Open Secret Society, and their symbol to mark their way was a fish. Then, great changes began to be made. The Emperor of Rome professed conversion to Christianity. He had to. For Rome, Rome would have fallen just as sure, just as sure as a tree in the forest falls to the axe if he had not made that move. In those early days of the real church, the real church, Christ's church, who practiced exactly what he taught them, great, great changes began to take place that have affected us right up to this very day. What a shock it must have been when Constantine professed a conversion to Christianity after stating that he had seen the vision of a cross in the sky. And some accounts say that he didn't see it in the sky during daylight, that he saw it in a dream. And ladies and gentlemen, because he never accepted Christ during his entire life, and in fact was a pagan sun worshiper, I question whether he ever saw a cross at all. You see, because history says and records very clearly that Constantine never accepted Christ as his Savior. He never really followed the teachings of Christ. He was, in fact, a sun worshiper. He practiced the mystery religion of Babylon. But he was, in fact, the emperor of Rome. Rome very quickly became, ladies and gentlemen, the Catholic Church, and the Roman emperor became the pope. He had to do this to save the empire. The symbol of the Roman empire and the emperor was the double-headed eagle. It signified that he ruled over both the east and the west, that the sun did not set on the Roman Empire. This symbol still is displayed upon the walls of the Vatican, and just recently Russia adopted this symbol as its national symbol. It is the symbol of the 33rd degree of Freemasonry. And I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But hopefully, you get the point. Imperial orders, ladies and gentlemen, went forth throughout the Roman Empire that persecutions should cease. Simply and quickly cease. Bishops were created and given high honors. The church began to receive worldly recognition and power. But for all of this, a great, great price had to be paid. Many, many compromises were made, ladies and gentlemen, with paganism. Instead of the church being separate from the world, it became a part of this world system. The emperor, showing favor, demanded a place of leadership in the church. For in paganism, emperors were believed to be gods. So from here on, wholesale mixtures of paganism into Christianity were made, especially at Rome. We believe the, the, the information that you're going to receive, and have received, in fact, over this broadcast, 
will convince you that what is known today as the Roman Catholic Church is nothing less than the old Roman Empire transformed and the old Roman pantheon of gods became the pantheon of saints. When Jesus spoke to a crowd and someone walked away from the crowd, he did not chase them down the road and try to stuff his teachings down their throat, ladies and gentlemen. He did not do that. Neither did he build great, wealthy cathedrals built of shining glass with great pageants on the holidays and big-name stars to come and sing and perform in these pageants where a homeless person or a poor, unemployed man with dirty clothes would be turned away from the door. Jesus Christ would have been the first one who welcomed that person into the church. And if you will look at the people that he habitually associated with, whose homes he slept in, who became his disciples, you will understand that those today who call themselves Christians do not even know the meaning of the word. I am on a mission, and that mission is to slap people upside the head and wake them up and even make them hate me, if that's what it takes to get them to go examine what I'm telling them to find out that it's right. You see, I don't care how it's done, as long as they wake up. And if I have to be the bad guy that they're going to hate for the rest of their life, that's okay with me, if I wake them up. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational i also have promotional t-shirts if you go to my website alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com you can see the promotional t-shirts there reach out to me also if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast just reach out and see if i can get that done i've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.